For today's episode, I had a big list of renegade women who had led rebellions against big superpowers. But as I got into it, it felt a bit repetitive. And that by no means demeans the valour of the women I was planning on covering. But I was doing the same story over and over again, just changing the names. So, this episode, I do have one rebellion leader, but also wanted to cover women who are renegades in a different way. I'm Natalie. This is Across the Ages. We're going to start today's episode in the 4th century. This century saw the writing of the Kama Sutra and Roman Emperor Constantine the Great ends persecution of Christians across the Roman Empire. Our first renegade woman is Moia, known in English as Mavia, but she wasn't English, she was Arabian, so we'll call her by her actual name. Someone on Twitter was kind enough to tell me how it was pronounced, so if I'm doing it wrong, not my fault. Anyway, Moia was a warrior queen of the semi-nomadic people known as the Tanuki tribe, often referred to as Saracens. This was a confederation of tribes living in what is now Syria and Jordan. A lot of the rulers of the Arab tribes have been lost to the sands of time, but the legend of Queen Moia has survived in oral traditions and songs due to her impressive achievements. Moia was the daughter of a tribe leader and married a chap called Al-Hawari, who was the king of the Tanuki tribe with Moia becoming the co-region in 375 CE. The Romans being the Romans wanted the territory of the tribe for themselves and set their eyes firmly on the prize. In the meantime, poor Al-Hawari had died and Roman Emperor Valens thought that a kingdom ruled by a queen would be easy pickings. Oh, Valens, you silly old goose. At the time, the tribe was living in Aleppo, but she decided it would be safer to move them into the desert, where they were much more at home than the Romans. Moia was a gifted warrior and was renowned for her tactics and horsemanship. If anyone dared to criticise or underestimate her because of her lack of a penis, they soon became a head shorter. Quite a clear message she was sending to idiots who disrespected her. I'm willing to bet that they probably wouldn't be able to do it twice after that. In the spring of 378, Moia and her forces began to fight a guerrilla-style war against the Romans, moving easily across the desert on horseback, smashing the Roman forces and melting back into the desert sands. They were super difficult for the Romans to fight. They had faster horses, longer lances, knew the terrain and had no home base that the Romans could target. In other words, a massive pain in the ass. She also won the hearts of the local people in the desert who were sympathetic to her cause and sick of Roman rule. Valen admitted defeat and had no choice but to agree to peace. To solidify the peace, Moia married her daughter to a prominent Roman military official. As part of the truce agreement, she agreed to send her forces to Thrace to help the Romans fight the Goths. Unfortunately, her forces were beaten and by this time Rome had a new emperor, Theodosius I, who decided he wanted to be mates with the Goths after all and gave them nice cushy positions in the empire. Bad news for the Arab tribes. She led another revolt in 383, which is six years after the first one. We don't know much about what happened after that, but what we do know is that it didn't go well, and Moia died in Anasartha, east of Aleppo, in the heart of the Tunicid tribal territory, where there's an inscription recording her death there in 425. (laughs) 
Eleanor of Aquitaine was Queen of France, Queen of England and mother of three kings, King Richard the Lionheart, King John of Robin Hood fame and Henry the Young King. She was born into an aristocratic family and her dad ensured that she was well educated in maths and astronomy, fluent in Latin and great at hunting and horse riding, which was sports usually reserved for the men. Her dad died in 1137 while on a pilgrimage to Spain, leaving her the title of Duchess of Aquitaine with a massive inheritance, leading her to become one of the most eligible bachelorettes in medieval Europe. Three months later, and she was married to Prince Louis of France. Soon after the marriage, the King of France died, and Eleanor and Louis were crowned King and Queen. She was said to be extroverted, lively, intelligent and strong-willed, unlike her husband-to-be, who was deemed quiet and introverted. Not content with sitting at home, Eleanor joined her husband in fighting for the Second Crusade in Constantinople and Jerusalem. Despite the Crusades being a massive dick move, she was still an impressive woman. She even disguised herself as an Amazon to lead troops into battle. Eleanor and Louis weren't the best of friends, and she seeked an annulment from the Pope, who was like, nah. However, after the birth of their second daughter, Louis agreed to an annulment, as he wanted a son, and after 15 years of marriage, Eleanor hadn't given him one. After the annulment, she married the Duke of Normandy, who would become Henry II of England. She went on to have 11 kids altogether. Just like her first husband, the pair didn't get on, and Henry threw her in jail for supporting a rebellion against him, led by their son Henry, and she remained there for the next 16 years until Henry died and was succeeded by Richard the Lionheart. Even before her son's coronation as King of England, Eleanor travelled all over the kingdom to forge alliances and foster goodwill and when he went off to serve in the Third Crusade, she served as regent. Her accomplishments were numerous, but among them was her role as patroness of the arts, which encouraged the development of the concepts of love and chivalry in French literature. It's believed to have significantly influenced the aristocracy to regard women more as humans and less like cows to be sold to the highest bidder. Eleanor spent her last years as a nun in France and died in her 80s in 1204. I toyed with the idea of whether Eleanor can be classed as a renegade, but she was a strong-willed woman working behind the scenes of four English kings in a time where women were seen solely as baby-making machines. Despite all this, she did smash out 11 children, so she must have spent most of her time being pregnant. She was well-loved and her opinion respected by those in positions of power. The 13th century saw the earliest known rockets, landmines and handguns made by the Chinese for use in warfare, and Robin Hood was said to be knocking about in Sherwood Forest, stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. You've heard of Chinggis Khan, but what of his descendants? Kutu Yun was Chinggis Khan's great-great-granddaughter. By 1260, the year Kutu Yun was born, the Mongol Empire was starting to fray at the seams, and civil war was imminent. Basically, some of the Khans were reminiscing about the old days of riding, shooting and the freedom of being nomadic, including their dad Kaidu, while her great-uncle Kublai Khan was more into politics. Eventually, Kaidu and Kublai began outright fighting against each other in a conflict that would last 30 years. Throughout this, Kaidu relied on one person above all others when it came to military expertise. He had 14 sons, but none of them fit the bill, like Kutu Yun. Marco Polo of Traveller fame describes her for us. Sometimes she would quit her father's side and make a dash at the host of the enemy and seize some man there out, as deftly as a hawk pounces on a bird, and carry him to her father, and this she did many a time. 
She grew up with 14 brothers, so testosterone and competition must have hung around her like a cloud of flies. She grew up to be a skilled warrior, being a great horseman and bowman. She was also incredibly adept at wrestling, which earned her the nickname The Wrestler Princess. As a princess, she had many suitors and challenged each one to a bet of a hundred horses on a wrestling match. If they beat her, she would accept the marriage. Legend has it that she had a herd of 10,000 horses. Her and her father apparently never lost a battle, and when her dad died, she was named heir over her 14 brothers. Who doesn't love the glamour and awe of the circus? The ones without the animals, of course. I'm talking acrobats, tightrope walkers, sword swallowers and strong women. Maud Stevens Wagner was an American circus performer in the early 20th century. You might know her picture as the heavily tattooed woman with a classically Victorian updo. She was born in 1877, but of course at some point ran away to join the circus, as I hear that's the only way it's done. She was an aerial acrobat as well as a contortionist and tightrope walker working in several travelling circuses. A turning point in her life happened in 1904 when she met a bloke called Gus Wagner, a tattoo artist who described himself as the most artistically marked up man in America. He used a trademark stick and poke method of tattooing and worked exclusively by hand, preferring it over using a machine. Maud and Gus hit it off and she agreed to go on a date with him if he taught her how to tattoo. Maud had a history as an artist and was a painter, so was able to pick up the skill quickly and became one of the first well-known female tattoo artists in the Western world. After a short time, Maud was soon decorated with badass drawings of monkeys, birds, tigers, horses, snakes, plants and women. The pair travelled with the circus working as tattoo artists. At the time, the tattoo biz was almost entirely dominated by men and Maud paved the way, showing women that they too have a place in the world of tattoo. It's incredible that this was over a century ago and we still have a stigma that surrounds tattoos and women get a particularly hard time. Tattoos are still expected to be covered up in many professions and are looked down upon with scorn by the conservatives of our society. Hopefully we will continue to keep moving in the right direction and those with power will start judging people by their worth, not by what is on their skin. You might have seen a picture of our next renegade woman, as she normally gets thrown in with interesting groups of historical pictures. Or maybe it's just me who spends too much time on the internet, but don't worry because I'm going to give you the lowdown. Annette Kellerman was born in 1887 in Australia. At the age of six, Annette was said to have a weakness in her legs, which meant that she had to wear steel braces, which must have been quite a horrible thing to deal with. Because of her struggles with mobility, her genius parents enrolled her in a swimming class and she took to it like a duck to water. By the age of 13, her legs had become strong and she was starting to become a serious competitive swimmer. In the early 1900s, women were expected to wear some stupid swimsuits. They wore short-sleeved knee-length dresses and bloody pantaloons all the way down to their ankles. It must have been like when you had to get your swimming badges at school by getting into your pyjamas and fetching that brick from the bottom of the pool, but about 10 times more voluminous. These swimsuits weren't made for swimming. They were made to cover up the modesty of women. Can't have them ankles driving anyone mad with the desire now, can we? Annette found these rubbish for swimming in, so created herself a one-piece costume which looked like a modern Olympian's triathlon outfit, but black and a bit thicker. Apparently in Australia, this didn't cause too much of a stir, but when she went to Boston to compete, 
Oh, Lord, did those in charge get all hot under the collar with rage. Branded as indecent, she was arrested. When the judge let her go, she was told to keep a cape around her before she entered the water so as not to offend anyone. As swimming and physical activity became more popular in the 1900s, many had a hard time adjusting to seeing female flesh. Laws were put into place and the female body was legislated. Some police were given permission to send women home or ask them to cover up if they were showing too much leg, while other local governments hired beach censors to patrol the shores and deal with immodesty. Along with her fame as an athlete, Annette became an actress starring in aquatic-themed films. She performed all her own stunts, one including diving 60 feet into a pool of crocodiles. What? She frequently starred as a mermaid, as you can imagine, and was the first actress to wear a swimmable mermaid costume. She was one of the very first famous actresses to perform fully nude in a film called A Daughter of the Gods, where her modesty was covered only by her long hair. Head hair, I mean. If that wasn't quite enough achievements for one woman, she also wrote a load of books such as How to Swim, Physical Beauty, How to Keep It, and a book of kids' stories called Fairy Tales of the South Seas. This absolute hero was also a vegetarian. What's not to like? In a fitting tribute upon her death in 1975 at the age of 88, her remains were scattered in the Great Barrier Reef. I know I said I wouldn't give loads of time to really famous women, but I'll have to make Frida Kahlo the exception because I love her so much. Not only is she a style icon, she pushed gender boundaries, was bisexual in a conservative Mexico and an active member of the Mexican Communist Party. Oh, she was also an incredibly famous artist too. Frida was born in Mexico in 1907. At the age of six, Frida contracted polio, which caused her to be bedridden for nine months. During her recovery, she limped when she walked and her dad encouraged her to play sports to help strengthen her muscles. She even took part in wrestling, which is relatively unusual for a girl now, let alone in the early 20th century, though I doubt she earned any horses from it. While travelling on a bus at the age of 18, Frida was involved in an accident when the bus smashed into a tram. She was impaled by a steel handrail which went into her hip. She suffered a broken bone, broken ribs, broken pelvis and had 11 breaks on her right leg. Her right foot was dislocated and crushed. This accident led her to have 30 operations over her lifetime. She was confined to bed wearing a full body cast for three months and started to paint, using it as a way to pass the time and express her pain. Frida Kahlo once said, I paint myself because I am often alone and I am the subject that I know best. Her parents encouraged her to paint and made a special easel made for her so that she could paint in bed and they even had a mirror installed in the canopy so she could paint herself. Kahlo married a famous painter called Diego Riviera in 1928 at the age of 22 and the relationship was rocky, Diego being a big womaniser. Frida's artwork is so expressive, it's not always pretty and if you haven't seen her work I'd encourage you to give it a look. She expressed so much pain in her work, including a painting depicting her grief after her second miscarriage. She was desperate for a child, but because of her accident, was unable to have any. She was a fierce communist, and in 1937 she helped to shelter a fellow communist from Russia called Leon Trotsky, who was the political rival of Stalin. Talking about her art, she said, since my subjects have always been my sensations, my states of mind and the profound reactions that life has been producing in me, I have frequently objectified all this in figures of myself, 
which were the most sincere and real thing that I could do in order to express what I felt inside and outside of myself. What I find inspiring about Frida is that she is she was in almost constant pain and dealt with a chronic disability for her entire life, but she carried on. She didn't hide it, but instead expressed herself through art for the world to see. I want to step away from her art for a second and talk about the person. Frida was famously bisexual, which makes her an absolute bicon. Whilst her portrait and eyebrows are known the world over, I'd encourage you to have a look at the family portrait where she turned up wearing a full three-piece suit with her hair slicked back in the male style at the time. She was also very feminine too. I just love her dress sense and any picture of her exudes joy despite what was going on under the surface. She comes across as matter-of-fact, honest and confident and these are all attributes that I really admire. The Second World War saw countless heroes as well as villains. Irina Senlerowa was born in 1910 in Warsaw, Poland. She grew up in an area with a big Jewish community and quickly learned Yiddish. Her dad was a socialist and she was raised with socialist ideals. In her youth she was a member of the Polish Democratic Youth Union and as an adult joined the Polish Socialist Party. She began studying at the University of Warsaw and studied law and Polish studies. In 1932, she started work in the legal department for the Mother and Child Assistance Division at the Polish Free University. She worked as a social worker, psychotherapist and a sex educator. In 1935, when her department closed, she got a position at the Warsaw Department of Social Welfare, which is where she was working when World War II broke out. The Nazis invaded Poland in 1939 and ordered that any Jews must be removed from the staff and the remaining staff were to stop providing any assistance to Jewish citizens. Irina had access to the Warsaw Ghetto where hundreds of thousands of Jews had been imprisoned. She posed as a sanitary division employee who would go into the ghetto to fight typhus, which the Nazis were worried would spread beyond. Under the pretext of conducting these inspections, they bought medications and sanitary items, sneaked in clothing and food and other necessities doing two to three runs a day. She went through different entrances as much as possible to avoid suspicion. The ghetto harboured her friends and colleagues who had ended up on the Jewish side of the wall. Irina and her colleagues began a rescue mission for the community's orphans. Some were carried out in potato sacks, others left in ambulances or snuck out through underground tunnels. Others entered the Jewish side of a Catholic church that straddled the ghetto boundary and left on the other side with new identities. Irina then helped place the children at convents or with non-Jewish families. In 1942, the Nazis started taking people from the ghetto to the death camps and Irina and her colleagues had to act much faster. Irina joined the Council to Aid Jews at great risk to herself under the pseudonym Yolanta. She also joined the Polish underground resistance. This is when she went further than orphans and began convincing parents to let her try to get their children to safety. Irina kept detailed records and lists of the children she helped buried in a jar. Her plan was to reunite the rescued children and their parents after the war, however most of the parents did not survive. In 1943, the Nazis arrested Irina and sent her to prison. There she was tortured in order to get the names of her associates. Irina was not to be broken, however, and sentenced to death. Thankfully, members of the Council to Aid Jews bribed her prison guards and she was released the following year. She continued her work until the end of the war and her and her colleagues rescued around 2,500 children, with Irina saving 400 personally. 
1965, Yad Vashem, Israel's Holocaust Memorial Organization, named Irina as Righteous Among the Nations for her work saving Jewish children. In 2003, Poland honoured her with its Order of the White Eagle. In 2008, Irina was nominated for, but did not win, a Nobel Peace Prize. She lived to the grand old age of 98, but gave many years to the hundreds of children that she saved. What an incredibly courageous and selfless woman. I had a cry when I was reading about this, and I struggled to believe that anyone reading anything about the Holocaust can't feel horrified at the countless atrocities committed when a specific group of people is considered less than another. A bit of a mix of renegade women today. I know the whole rebel women theme can be a bit overdone, but I hope that I've featured some women that you might not have heard of before. I'll have to repeat what I said in last episode, that the achievements of these women would be praised now, but the fact that these are stories of the past makes them all the more impressive. I said I'd be doing a part three on renegade women, but I feel like a two-parter is enough for now. Next week, I'll be covering something completely different, though I have no idea what yet, and I'll see where the wind takes me. And that's your lot today, history fans. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen. Be sure to share with other history nerds if you enjoyed it and to get a shout-out in a future episode with a five-star review on iTunes. Reviews really help the podcast grow, and more importantly, I like to hear people say nice things about me. To get in touch, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore Across the Ages, or you can like my page on Facebook at Across the Ages Pod. Keep an eye out for the next episode, where I'll be delving into another topic, Across the Ages. Across the Ages.